great to be with you this morning to celebrate and worship. And today we've got a lot of reason to celebrate and worship because there is some great news. You know, over the last few years, we've gotten a lot of bad news, right? There's been news about the pandemic and about politics and about war and about crime. There's lots and lots and lots of bad news because there's a lot of tragedy and sorrow and evil in our world. But today, I'm here to proclaim to you that there is some great good news, which is that Jesus Christ is alive. And he is not just alive in our memories He is not just alive in our hearts. He's not just alive as a disembodied spirit out there somewhere. This is not the same as when people say Elvis is alive, right? This is not a hoax. This is not a rumor. This is not a conspiracy theory. No, friends, the risen body of Jesus Christ is alive today. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will live and reign forevermore. And today I want to talk to you about this glorious truth because the truth about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, this is the most important news that you can hear today. It's critically important because if you have never trusted Jesus for salvation, we're going to see today you are in a terribly dangerous position. Today I want you to know you're in danger and I want you to know there's a remedy to your danger. You can find safety and peace in Jesus alone. But today, if you have trusted Christ, I also want you to listen carefully, to think again about who Jesus is and what he has done for you, so that you will overflow with thankfulness and praise to God for his great mercy and love that he has demonstrated in Jesus. So to help us think about these things today, we're going to look at a passage from the book of Titus. Today we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 7. If you'd like to follow along this morning, the text of the passage is printed on the back of your bulletin, or it's on the Pew Bible at page 938. And I'm going to start today by reading our passage. So if you're able to do so, please stand together and let's hear the word of God. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is God's word. Please be seated. Come on, let's have a big amen for this is God's word. Amen. All right. Now today we're going to talk about three truths that we find in this passage. Number one, the grace of God has appeared in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Second, the grace of God is individually received by our exercise of repentant faith in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And third, the grace of God changes who we are and how we live and what we await in the future. So our first point is that the grace of God has appeared in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you don't know what those words mean, I'll explain them in just a minute. But the Bible starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God made everything from the biggest star to the smallest subatomic particle. God created plant life and animal life. And as his summative creation in this world, Genesis 1 says, God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And God made all of this in a state of perfection. Genesis 1 says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But even though God provided a perfect world, the first people were deceived, and they chose to rebel against God's good rule. And that brought about calamity. Romans 5 says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Sin is a theological term that means rebellion against God. And the sin of the first humans had a heavy consequence. It ruined creation. If you want to know why we have natural disasters and diseases, that's why. And more than that, humanity fell under the sentence of death. Now, when we think about death, we usually think about physical death, the idea that someday our bodies and our spirits will be separated. And that was part of the consequence of Adam's sin. But there was more. Humanity also fell under the judgment of spiritual death. We were cut off and alienated from a relationship with God, the source of all life and goodness. And these terrible consequences of physical and spiritual death did not apply only to the first people because Adam and Eve had children. And the Bible says in Genesis 5, Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. And so now all of us bear not only the good image of God, but also the image of fallen Adam. And every human being since is born in this fallen state, reflecting Adam's sin and his corrupt nature. And so we all live under the consequences that Adam earned. We all live with the knowledge that one day we each will physically die. And we are all born spiritually dead, separated from God, and overpowered by sin. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, being by nature children of wrath. This is humanity in its natural condition. We are swept along by the whims of the culture. We are dancing to Satan's tune. We are dominated by our physical urges and our evil imaginings. In Jesus' words, we are slaves of sin. And the Bible says in this condition, we are endlessly heaping up condemnation for ourselves, heading for God's wrath, which the Bible describes as eternal death. 2 Thessalonians 1 calls this the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. This is what humanity deserves because we are a fallen and cursed race rebelling against God by our nature and our choices. And, and not only is this true in the abstract, it's easy enough for me to get up here and bewail the evils of humanity generally. Friends, this is personally true. For me and for you, I am a sinner by nature and choice, and so are you. And as we come to our passage, the Apostle Paul gives us an honest description of who we are in our natural condition. Titus 3.3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We might not like these descriptions, but they're true. This is who we are naturally. We are helpless before everything that looks good and that feels good and that makes us feel important. And we chase these things. And when we get them, we crave more. And when we don't get them, we're filled with envy and covetousness. We hate people who think or act or look differently than we do. And we especially hate anybody who tells us that we're wrong. Because we love our sin. And yet inwardly we know it's evil. We know it doesn't satisfy us. But when temptation beckons, we still come running. Because we are enslaved to sin. And because we are deceived and fallen, we think that this lifestyle of doing whatever we want is freedom. Friends, that is a lie. It's folly and it's slavery. And we're just earning more of God's wrath. Friends, this is our story. This is my story and your story. And we need to know that this is an existential problem. We cannot improve this situation because our problem is not only behavioral. Often when we talk about sin, we think that it's just an issue of what we do or what we fail to do. But if our problem was only behavioral, then we might be able to leverage psychology or education or sociology to improve our situation. No, friends, our problem is more fundamental than our behavior. The issue is our nature, the sin nature that we have inherited from Adam. And try as we might, we can't change our own nature. And so we languish in slavery, awaiting the day when we will face the condemnation of a holy God for our every evil thought, word, and deed. That's some really bad news, isn't it? But praise God, that's not the end of the story. Because as we read in our first verse, the grace of God has appeared. 
Now, grace is a word Christians often use, but it may be a word we don't understand. Grace means unmerited favor. God has given his favor to humanity, even though we didn't merit it. We didn't deserve it. What we deserve is death and hell. But what God has given is grace. Chapter 3 puts it like this. In verse 4, the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. While we are filled with evil, God shows us goodness. While we are filled with hatred, God shows us kindness. And how has God demonstrated these things? Well, Paul uses the same verb to explain how God has demonstrated his grace, his goodness, and his kindness. He says these things have appeared. What's he mean? Well, we don't have to guess. Because Paul uses the same language in chapter 2, verse 13. When he speaks about the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that verse is talking about Jesus' second coming. But just as Jesus will appear again in the future, he has already appeared in the past. And it is in Jesus' first coming that God has demonstrated his kindness, his goodness, and his grace. Let me tell you a little bit about this Jesus. He was born about 2,030 years ago. The Bible tells us he was miraculously, virginally conceived. He was born to a working class family. The man that everybody wrongly assumed was his father, Joseph, raised him. And Joseph was a skilled laborer, like a construction worker. And Jesus learned that trade, and he, he worked in it for about 30 years. But then one day, Jesus left that behind, and he began going around the countryside preaching. And Jesus said some astonishing things. In John 6, he says, I have come down from heaven. In John 10, he says, I and the Father are one. Jesus openly declared that he was God in the flesh. It's an extraordinary claim. If somebody said that to us today, we'd probably think, wow, you're really crazy. But Jesus didn't just make this claim. He proved it because he wielded the very power of God. Mark 1 says, he healed many who were sick and he cast out many demons See, Jesus demonstrated total power over the natural realm, and he demonstrated total power over the supernatural realm. He did the things that the Old Testament says only God can do. He stilled storms. He walked on water. And most importantly, he forgave sin. Jesus demonstrated the power of God. And more than that, Jesus demonstrated his own exemplary moral character. Jesus' two best friends were John and Peter. They spent three years living with him very closely as he went about ministering. And this is what they say about Jesus. 1 Peter 2 says he committed no sin. 1 John 3 says in him there is no sin. Friends, could your best friend say that about you? Jesus' best friends say he lived a perfect sinless life, the life that you and I have failed to live. And that's not because Jesus isn't human. He is human. He's every bit as human as you or I are. But something about his miraculous conception protected him from being stained by the sin of Adam. So Jesus was not a slave to sin. Jesus was not spiritually dead. Instead, Jesus lived a life empowered by the Holy Spirit that perfectly obeyed the Father. 
And yet, despite his righteous life, despite his powerful miracles demonstrating that he was God in the flesh, Jesus' enemies persecuted him, they falsely accused him, and they nailed him to a cross. Now, this might seem incomprehensible to us. If Jesus really was that righteous, that powerful, if he really was God, how could his enemies engineer his murder? It's a great question. But there's an even better answer, which is that what Jesus' enemies plotted was actually playing out the eternal plan and purpose of God. Peter says this in Acts 2. Jesus, whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yes, evil people chose to murder Jesus, and God holds them accountable for that. But what they did is what the Father intended to happen from before the beginning of time, that his dear son would have to go suffer on the cross. And I want you to know this, that for his part, Jesus was not a helpless victim, but he was in control the entire time that he was being brutalized and killed. In John 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And that's what we see in our passage. In Titus 2.14, we read that he gave himself for us. Jesus chose to give himself up. He chose to suffer death, even the worst death imaginable, the death on the cross. And why did Jesus choose to endure this horror? Titus 2.14 says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What was God doing in allowing Jesus to die? The answer is this. God was demonstrating his love. His love for us even while we were his vile enemies. And yet even in that terrible condition, God loved us. And he gave his son for us. And Jesus gave himself for us. And why did he do this? The text says so that he might form a people for his own possession. A group of people drawn out from the mass of sinful humanity. To form a new population. A population of men and women. Of young and old. From every nation and language group on earth. A population who is to no longer be characterized by evil, hatred, envy, and slavery to sin, but a population who will instead be characterized by good works, by lives of obedience to God. You want to know what God's purpose is? That's God's plan, to form this new population, this new humanity. And to do that, Jesus had to die, to redeem us, Paul says. This word redeem speaks of paying a ransom to set someone free from slavery. God wanted to buy us out of bondage to sin. He wanted to free us from sin, death, and hell. And the price was the death of Jesus. Because the price that must be paid for sin is always death. A life had to be given. And if it wasn't to be our lives, then someone who is without sin has to die in our place. Someone who was not already under God's condemnation. Someone who is sinless. And only Jesus can fit that bill. Only he can stand in that gap and pay for our sins. And friends, he did. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who is entirely without sin, became sin. And he did that to make a great exchange, the Bible says, in which he takes our place, he takes our guilt and our sin and the penalty that should have fallen on us, and he gives to us his own perfect righteousness. That's why Jesus died. And after he died, they buried him. But on the third day, the greatest miracle occurred. Jesus' dead body returned to life. He got up. He pushed away the stone that had sealed the tomb. And he strolled on out. And friends, I want you to know, we don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus just because there was an empty tomb. The risen Jesus was seen alive again many times after that. Paul summarizes this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The risen Jesus appeared to individuals, to believers like Peter, and to unbelievers like his own brother James. He appeared to massive crowds. He appeared in all sorts of settings. And friends, his appearances were the real thing. This was no trickery. The Bible says the first eyewitnesses, many of them doubted what they were seeing. But Acts 1 says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many convincing proofs. And I want you to know these appearances of the risen Jesus changed people's lives. Jesus' disciples had been cowering in terror when he was killed. They were afraid what happened to Jesus would happen to them. So they locked themselves in a room. But when they saw the risen Jesus, they went out to the whole world and proclaimed him. Jesus' brother James, for years, had thought that his brother was crazy. But after the resurrection, he saw the risen Jesus and worshipped him as God. Paul had been the sworn enemy of Christianity. But when he met the risen Jesus, he became Christianity's greatest preacher. Now, in our skeptical minds, we might imagine, well, there was some incentive for all these people to lie. And maybe we think, well, you know, if you invent a new religion, you can make a lot of money. Maybe that's what this was about. But understand that in that day, the only, people, or the only thing that these people were signing up for when they said that Jesus was risen was that they were going to be persecuted for that. They were going to be cast out of their communities. They were going to be shunned by their families. They were going to be arrested and beaten and tortured, and most of them were going to be killed. Friends, this is not a story anybody would have had any incentive to come up with in the first century. This is a story which, if it's false, nobody would have had any reason to proclaim. But the witnesses proclaimed it anyway. And when the arrests and the beatings came, they didn't change their story. When they were threatened with death, they kept saying, Jesus is risen. And you know, the only apostle who wasn't murdered was John. And according to the early church, they threw him alive into a vat of boiling oil. Now, if you knew it was a lie, if you knew Jesus was still dead, would you go into a vat of boiling oil to maintain your lie? The early church says that the first time they threw him in, it didn't kill him. And he was still professing Jesus. So they threw him in the, the, the vat of boiling oil a second time. Would you go in a vat of boiling oil a second time if you knew that Jesus was actually dead? 
to maintain a lie that you had invented? Nobody would do that. But John kept professing Jesus was alive. He didn't change his story because like the other witnesses who died, John could not deny what he knew to be true, which is that Jesus is risen. And the fact that Jesus rose from death is the most important fact in thinking about who Jesus is. If Jesus claimed to be God and lied, when he died, what would have happened to him? He would have stayed dead. He would have been condemned by God. But Jesus claimed to be God. He died, and then he returned to life. In the resurrection, the Father is publicly declaring and confirming Jesus' identity. Romans 1 says he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is, as Paul says in our passage, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What I want you to know is if Jesus is God, which we've seen that he is, this is really important because it means that everything Jesus says is true. Because Titus 1.4 says God never lies. And so when Jesus tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, that's true. No other religion, no other philosophy, no other approach to life can save us. Our only hope runs through Jesus. So friends, we've got a big problem, which is that we're sinners by nature and choice. But there's good news, which is the grace, the kindness, and the goodness of God has appeared in Jesus who lived a sinless life, who died for us, and who rose again. Our second point is that the grace of God is individually received through repentant faith in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus is God and man. That's what this word incarnation means, that he took on humanity. He died for us, and he's risen. But how do we gain access to the benefits that Jesus has secured? How do we become part of God's people? Well, let's go back to the first verse in our passage, Titus 2.11. It says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Lots of people read this verse and say, Oh, everybody's going to be saved. Is that what Paul's saying here? No. We know that because of the context of this verse. The first ten verses of this chapter are all about how the people of God come from all kinds of different backgrounds. Paul speaks there about young people and old people, men and women, slaves and free people. Revelation 5 says the people of God will come from every tribe and language and people and nation. Salvation is not a question of your age or your sex or your ethnicity or your socioeconomic class. No, God has extended the offer of salvation to all kinds of people. That's what Paul's saying here. Moreover, we know that not everybody's going to be saved because of what Paul writes elsewhere. 2 Thessalonians 1 says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Friends, not everybody will be saved. Even though Christ has appeared and died and risen, many will still be lost. The saving grace of God does not touch everyone. Paul says it only touches those who obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now when we hear this word obey, we might imagine that what Paul means is there's some code of conduct. That if we just keep all those rules, if we obey them, we'll be saved. But that's not what Paul means either. And we see that in Titus 3.5. 
where he says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. We are not saved by the performance of good works. We cannot be saved by works. Because, friends, in our natural fallen condition, we are unable to perform any works that God would see as good. Isaiah 64 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade away like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. In our natural condition, even our best works are like disgusting soiled garments before God. They do not earn God's favor. Friends, if you imagine today that you're a good person, or that you're a nice person, that sometimes you do some nice, nice things. And that that means in the end you're going to be okay. You are sorely mistaken. This passage tells us relying on our works will not lead us to salvation. It will result in us being blown away in God's judgment to everlasting ruin. But for a moment, let's imagine that even in our natural condition that we could do some good works. We can't, but let's imagine for a moment that we could. That still wouldn't help us. Because even if, from now until the end of our lives, we never sinned again, that wouldn't change the fact that there is sin in our past, which deserves God's judgment. And it wouldn't change the fact that by our nature, we are sinners. We are still corrupt to the core. Our works can't change those truths. They can't undo our past guilt. They can't change our nature. So our works can't save us. And so we've seen not everyone will be saved, and no one can be saved by works. So then how can anyone be saved? But Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We cannot save ourselves, but God can save us. And that's what Paul says beginning in Titus 3 verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we'll stop there. If we're to be saved, God's got to do it. And Paul now describes exactly how God takes fallen, wretched sinners like me and you and saves us, how he makes us part of his people. So this describes salvation from God's perspective. And here's what Paul says. First, we are saved by God's grace alone. We cannot earn his salvation. It is something he gives to us without us earning it. It is a free gift. Second, God's grace manifests itself in mercy. God withholds the condemnation that we deserve. And instead, we read that Jesus has poured out upon us the Holy Spirit. And on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished, through the work of the Holy Spirit, God does a few things. First, he washes us. He works inside of us, cleansing us of our sin, forgiving all that we have done and all that we will ever do against God. Second, he makes us new. We each have this ruined, corrupt nature which is enslaved to sin, but the Holy Spirit regenerates us. The Greek word speaks of being born again. He makes us a new creation. He creates in us a new nature that is no longer bound by Adam's sin and curse. Third, he, make, he renews us. We, we had been spiritually dead. We had been severed 
from God. But the Holy Spirit gives us a newness of life. He reconciles us to God so that we have a relationship to Him. So that we can commune with Him and understand what He tells us when we hear the gospel. And why does the Holy Spirit do all of this work in people? Paul says, so that we might be justified. What's that mean? Justification is the state of being declared not guilty by God. And friends, if we are to be saved, if we are to avoid God's judgment in the end, we must be justified. If God declares us guilty on the last day, we will be forever lost. And so we need to be found by God to be not guilty. But the problem is we are guilty. How does God work this out? Well, we said a moment ago, Christ on the cross conducts a great exchange. He receives sin and the wrath that sin deserves. And he grants his own righteousness to allow people to stand before the Father in his own moral perfection. And justification is when God takes this great exchange and applies it to us. He credits our sin to Jesus and credits Jesus' righteousness to you and me. That is how we are declared just before God. And what I want you to see here is that God has to do so many things to make fallen sinners into his people. Because that's how corrupt our sin is. We have to be made new. We have to have our spiritual death reversed. We have to have our sin forgiven and cleansed. We have to have the benefits of Christ's work applied to us. And only God can do these things. We can't do any of these things. But God in his grace and mercy does everything that is required for us to be saved. That is salvation from God's perspective. But we might reasonably ask, well, what does this look like from our perspective? We cannot save ourselves by our works. How are we to be saved? Well, in Acts 17, Paul declares that God has made a good faith offer of salvation to the whole world when he says that God commands all people everywhere to repent. Friend, God is offering you salvation today. How should you respond? Ephesians 2 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We receive God's salvation when we exercise saving faith in Jesus. You say, what's that mean? And Jesus tells us in his first sermon in Mark 1, when he says, repent and believe the gospel. Saving faith involves repentance. We've got to recognize our old life of sin is disastrous. It's leading us to eternal ruin. We've got to turn away from that path, and we've got to turn towards Jesus in faith. We've got to believe the gospel, the good news. Say, well, what is the gospel? Let me tell you two passages that tell us what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here's the idea. Jesus is Lord. In the Old Testament, this word usually speaks of God. So Jesus is fully human and fully God. We've got to believe that. We've got to believe that he died in our place for our sins, that he took the condemnation that we deserved. And we've got to believe that he has risen from death bodily. And as our Lord and God, we've got to recognize Jesus has the right to rule over us, and we've got to follow him. 
And if we recognize these realities and entrust ourselves to Jesus, calling out to him as our Lord and God, asking him to forgive us because of what he has accomplished, we will be saved. And if we respond to Jesus with this faith, this passage tells us what God has done in our hearts. He's made us new. He's given us life. He's drawn us to himself. And that is the only reason we're able to respond to the gospel, because he's done all the work. So salvation is entirely of God by his grace alone, and we receive it through faith in Christ alone. But I come now to my last point, which is this. The grace of God changes who we are and how we live and what we await in the future. If you've come to Christ, if you've been made new, if you've been reconciled to God, you need to know true faith will impact your life. The first way true faith impacts our lives is it leads us to renounce our former lives of sin. Titus 2.12 says, The grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The true believer in Jesus will experience life change. Because not only have we been made new, but we have recognized the awfulness and the folly of sin. We, we said a moment ago, true faith is repentant faith, a faith that has turned away from the life we used to live. Believing, friends, we are not who we used to be, so we ought not live like we used to live. This is an important truth people don't want to talk about today. A lot of people think that coming to Jesus is like buying fire insurance. You know, we pray the magic words, and then we get back to living however we want. Friends, that is a lie from the pit of hell. True faith changes us. It will make us want to obey God. Now, we will not obey God perfectly, because although he's made us new, we're not what we will be in the end. We're still in the body. We're still living in a deceitful culture. The evil one is attacking us, hoping to destroy us. Temptation persists. We will still sin, and sometimes we will sin terribly. But because of the faithfulness of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God is at work in our lives, making us more like Christ, calling us to war against our sin, and we should see some victory. That's what Paul says here in verse 12 of chapter 2. God will work in and through our lives to grow us, to conform us more to his will, and make us more like Jesus, to grow us in repentance. See, repentance isn't just something we do when we come to faith. Martin Luther wrote, the entire life of the believer is a life of repentance. And that's the truth. Believers, through the, the whole course of our lives, we will constantly have to make course corrections as we become aware of sin in our lives and war against it as God's grace works itself out through us. But not only does true faith cause us to grow in repentance, second, true faith causes us to live lives of obedience that please God. We are not saved by our works, but saved people will walk in good works. We will cultivate spiritual virtues. Titus 2.12 says, God's grace teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Self-control is the ability not to be dominated by emotional impulses or physical desires. Uprightness means we will treat other people in a just way. And godliness means we will live a life that is reverent towards God, that desires to please Him. And this is not a promise for the distant future or for the afterlife. Paul says this is how it should be for believers now who live in what he calls this present age or in Galatians, this present evil age. In the midst of our dark times, believers, we are to shine out the light of the glory of God. And that too is something God's grace accomplishes in our lives through the gospel, the cultivation of spiritual virtue.
More than spiritual virtue, the grace of God allows believers to obey commands that come from God. Paul tells Titus in chapter 2, verse 15, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. We'll look at these verses in detail next week. But the idea is this. Believers are changed people. Believers are now able to obey God. And there are commands God gives us that he means for us to obey. Not because doing so will save us. But after we're saved, we can do works that please God. And we ought to live lives of obedience to honor and thank God who has done so much for us. So our attitude and our conduct changes. And that's another result of our coming to true faith. Third, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 13, that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus has appeared once. He will appear again. And for much of our world, this is bad news. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. The return of Jesus will bring ruin to many people in this world. But friends, if you belong to Jesus, you don't have to live in terror of the truth that he's coming back. We can have confidence and boldness because we know the one who is the final judge. Because he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. He was crushed for our iniquities and by his wounds we have been healed. And so we wait. And we wait eagerly. For the day when Christ will make all things right, when his justice and truth and righteousness will prevail over this evil world, for when our faith will be sight. And when Jesus comes, that will be the moment of our greatest joy and glory. Because Paul says in the last verse of this passage, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, in this life, Jesus offers us many great benefits, joy and peace and a community of believers. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people the most to be pitied. Our ultimate and truest hope is not found in this world. It is to be found in a glorious inheritance which comes from the Father to Jesus and to all who believe in Jesus. Colossians 1 says, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friend, if you have trusted Jesus, the father has made you the heir to the greatest of all fortunes. You are an heir of God and a fellow heir of Christ, Romans 8 says. And what will you inherit? A new creation, a place where God says in Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And we will inherit eternal life. Just as Jesus conquered death and rose bodily, every person who trusts themselves to Jesus will one day receive a glorified body like his. 1 Corinthians 15 says, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. 
1 John 3 says, When he appears, we shall be like him, because we'll see him as he is. And as Jesus has risen to life, never to die again, we will follow his pattern. We will live forever. We will dwell in the new creation along the saint, alongside the saints of all the ages. And we will dwell in the very presence of God forever. In Christ, because of his resurrection, the prospect of eternal death is vanquished. Believers, we will receive eternal life. Our spiritual death is healed. We are reconciled to God with a new life. And in Christ, even the specter of physical death is not fearsome. Because we know the one who has conquered death. And he promises to let us share in his victory. And so to conclude, friends, today, if you have never trusted Jesus, I implore you, let today be the day of salvation. Because you remain under the sentence of physical and spiritual and eternal death. Cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus. He is God and man. He has died and is risen. If you feel God calling to you today to turn from your sin and cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus, I beg you, do so. Today, if you claim to be a Christian, I want you to examine yourself. Does your life reflect what we talked about just a few minutes ago? Do you have a heart desire to obey Jesus? Yes, we all sin. But Jesus says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. When you hear Jesus' voice, do you care what he says? Do you want to follow him? Or do you just want to hit the mute button so you could go back to doing all the sinful things that you've always done? So many people claim to belong to Jesus today, but they're only after fire insurance. Friends, know that Jesus is not an insurance salesman. He is a Lord. And he has come to save a people for his own possession. People who belong to him. People who are growing in obedience and whose lives look differently than they used to. That's what true faith generates. And I've got to ask, does that describe you? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. It's bad to be an unbeliever, but it's worse to be deceived about your spiritual condition. But today, if you truly belong to Jesus, then rejoice. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter how bad things may seem, Jesus is alive. He's at work in you. He's preparing you for eternal bliss with him. And one day soon, we will be with him in a resurrection body like his in unending joy. So praise God today for Jesus and for the resurrection. He is risen.